Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It is the third week of Advent, which means it's the third episode of, my, uh, of Christmas with Meister Eckhart which also means that we're going to read the third Christmas sermon of our friend Meister Eckhart, the Dominican Catholic mystic and philosopher. I hope your uh, last week has been, uh, has been uh, uh, positive in some way. I, 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 I'm very glad about the response to both of the earlier videos. I hope you liked the last one. Um, at this time, we're going to go even deeper. Sermon three is... Um, it, it, it it continues along the same lines. There are a lot of the same themes. He goes a little deeper into some questions, such as um, this relationship between sort of inner passivity and and active. Um, sort of how, if we're supposed to be completely passive and, and quiet and still on the inside, what does that say about our outer actions, our um, performance of, of religious? rituals and so on and so he's going to say some things that you know some of those things that he was probably most controversial for which we will get to in due time um oh right of course we're going to light the candle the third candle for the third week as you can see the first two are already lit For anyone that um, hasn't seen the earlier videos or who don't know about Meister Eckhart and his ideas, I suggest you go watch, particularly the first uh, episode in this little series on Christmas, uh, on Eckhart's Christmas sermons, or the full video on Eckhart and his philosophy. Again, and I'll put links to that probably in a card up here, and then maybe some links in the description. So we're not going to we're not going to give an overview of, of, his, of his thought again, um, but we're going to sort of continue where we left off last week. Um, what we can say very briefly is uh, that uh, Christmas to Meister Eckhart is primarily about the birth of the Word or the birth of the Son, which is something that, that takes place both in time, as the human Jesus was born, but also in the, the, the ground of the soul. And that's the theme that he's going to continue building on in this third sermon. Once again, we are reading from the complete mystical works of Meister Eckhart, um, translated by Maurice O'Connor Walsh. I think someone asked um, where these sermons are in this particular work. Um, some people reached out saying that they have this book, but they don't know they don't know which of all because this is a big book, obviously, and. There's a lot of sermons in here. They asked which of all these sermons are the Christmas sermons. And uh, you're in luck because the Christmas sermons are the first four sermons in the book. So it's sermon one, two, three, and four. Uh, very convenient. In any case, uh, sermon number three. Let's, uh, let's dive back into the world of, of Eckhart and Christian mysticism. As we read a third sermon here of, of Eckhart. Again, he begins with a Bible quote and bases the entire thing on this Bible quote, which is uh, Luke 2.49, I must be about my father's business. He says, this text is most appropriate to what we have to say concerning the eternal birth which took place in time and still happens daily in the innermost part of the soul, in her ground, remote from all adventitious events. In order to become aware of this interior birth, it is above all necessary for man to be concerned with his father's business. What are the father's attributes? Power is ascribed to him more than to the other two persons, 
that is uh, more so power is ascribed more so to the Father than to the Son or the Holy Spirit. And so, none assuredly can experience or approach this birth without a mighty effort. A man cannot attain to this birth except by withdrawing his senses from all things. And that requires a mighty effort to drive back the powers of the soul and inhibit their functioning. This must be done with force. Without force it cannot be done. As Christ said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. So he's sort of summarizing a lot of what he has said in the earlier sermons here, that um, the one who wishes to experience this birth of the soul needs to, um, as he says, drive back the powers of the soul. Um, so it takes a lot of effort. So it's not just sitting there waiting for something to happen. It's, it's an effort of you know, spiritual practice and, and, and devotion to God that leads one to that state. One has become unknowing where there is nothing remaining into which God can, um, to which God can become apparent in a direct, unmediated sense. A question arises about this birth of which we have spoken. Does it happen continuously or at intervals? When a man applies himself to, uh, to it and exerts himself with all his might to forget all things and be conscious in this alone. Now note the explanation. Man has an active intellect, a passive intellect, and a potential intellect. The active intellect is ever ready to act, whether it be in God or in creatures, for it exerts itself rationally in creatures in the way of ordering the creatures and brings them back to their source in raising itself to the honor and glory of God. All that is in its power and its domain, and hence its name, active. But when God undertakes the work, the mind must remain passive. But potential intellect pays regard to both, to the activity of God and the passivity of the soul, so that this may be achieved as far as possible. In the one case, there is activity, where the mind does the work itself. In the other case, there is passivity when God undertakes the work, and then the mind should, nay must, remain still and let God act. Now before this is begun by the mind and completed by God, the mind has a provision of it, a potential knowledge that it can come to be thus. This is the meaning of potential intellect, though it often is neglected and never comes to fruition. But when the mind strives with all its might and with real sincerity, then God takes charge of the mind and its work, and then the mind sees and experiences God. But since this enduring and vision of God places an intolerable strain on the mind while in its body, God accordingly withdraws at times from the mind, and that is why he said, A little while you shall see me, and again a little while you shall not see me. He's talking here about the active intellect, the passive intellect, and the potential intellect. And these are this is uh, philosophical jargon, particularly in the, the peripatetic school, so the philosophical school of Aristotle. talks about active intellect and uh, passive intellect and so on. We've encountered these terms when we've studied people like um, Abu Lafia in Judaism. or It shows up in a, a lot of different places. Aristotle was very um, influential philosophically in, in many ways, of course, in the Middle Ages. And, you know, I'll be honest that um, the relationship between these intellects and what he's saying here isn't always that um, crystal clear to me. Um, but I think what we can take away from this for sure is, is this, um, this idea that he emphasizes that the, the, uh, the, the intellect that is receptive to God is the passive intellect. So the active intellect is that um, part of ourselves that sort of, um, and he will get to this later on too, that it's this thing that takes information from the outside and then sort of gives it to us, whereas the passive intellect is, is that which receives. And so if we can shut off our active intellect, our individual active intellect, and let the passive intellect, our, our passivity, sort of receive directly from God, then that is um, preferable. And then there's this... Uh, concept of the potential intellect here, which seems to be some sort of, I'm honestly not entirely sure how that fits into this wider picture. It seems to be, he says, the potential, the potential intellect pays regard to both, 
to the activity of God and the passivity of the soul. So it seems to be some sort of some part, some part of the intellect or some kind of intellect that, that knows both uh, at the same time in some way. If you guys have, have any uh, better ideas of, of, of like more clear ideas of what he's trying to say, especially with the potential intellect, then uh, let's, let's keep that discussion going in the comments. In any case, he continues by saying, when our Lord took his three disciples with him up the mountain and had shown them privately the illumination of his body, which he had through union with the Godhead, and which we too shall have at the resurrection of the body, St. Peter at once, on seeing it, wished to remain there always. Indeed, when a man finds the good, he cannot easily part from it insofar as it is good. Where this is recognized by knowledge, love must follow, and memory, and all the powers of the soul. And our Lord, well knowing this, is constrained to hide at times, for the soul is a simple form of the body, and wherever she turns, she turns as a whole. Where she always conscious of the good which is God, immediately and without interruption, she would never be able to leave it to influence the body. So, um, he's saying that, um, this vision of God, this complete vision of God, immediate without interruption to the soul, is so powerful that there is no chance that the soul can ever be concerned with anything else while it is concerned or is, or is experiencing that presence of God. And so God cannot be experienced in that way at all times because then we wouldn't be able to do anything. Right? We'll just be completely absorbed in this, in this presence of God and that would sort of completely inhibit any, any powers, any outward actions. Um, we were completely annihilated in, in a, like a real sense, just being lost in that uh, divine presence. Thus it befell Paul. If he had remained for a hundred years at the spot where he came to know the good, he would never have returned to the body. He would have forgotten it completely. And so, because this is not conductive to this life and alien to it, God in his mercy veils it when he will and reveals it when he will and when he knows, like a trustworthy physician, that it is most useful and helpful to you. This withdrawal is not yours, but his who does the work. He can do it or not as he will, well knowing when it avails you best. It is in his hands to reveal or conceal according as he knows you can endure it. For God is not a destroyer of nature, rather he perfects it, and God does this ever more and more, the more you are fitted for it. So God chooses when he gives this vision of, of the complete presence and the amount, at least this is how I, how I read it, the amount that people are given this vision or this, this experience of this presence also depends on their own sort of constitution, where they're at in terms of their soul. Again, going back to that idea that it is something that we have to work for, right? It's not just something that can happen to anyone at any time, necessarily. But you might say, oh sir, if this requires a mind free of all images and all works, which lie in the powers by their very nature, then how about those outward works we must do sometimes, works of charity, which all take place without, such as teaching or comforting the needy? Should people be deprived of this? As our Lord's disciples were so much occupied with such things, as, according to St. Augustine, St. Paul was so burdened and preoccupied with people's cares as if he were their father, Shall we then be deprived of this great good because we are engaged in works of charity? So a good question here asked by either the audience or rhetorically by Eckhart himself. If the goal is to be completely passive and just shut off all the outward powers, all actions and all, um, yeah, these powers as he calls them of the soul, then what about all these things that we, sh that we, sh that we are told to do um, by you know, the, the ideals of the religion and even in, in sort of trying to mimic the life of Jesus and, and the disciples and the apostles, for example, giving to charity, helping the needy, being a good person, you know, loving your neighbor, all these things. How are we supposed to do that if the goal of this um, um, annihilation is to completely just shut off all outward powers? That seems sort of contradictory. So he's going to try to give an answer here. Now note the answer to such questions. The one thing is noblest, the other very profitable. 
Mary was praised for choosing the best, but Martha's life was of very great profit, for she served Christ and his disciples. Master Thomas says the active life is better than the contemplative, insofar as in action one pours out for love that which one has gained in contemplation. It is actually the same thing, for we take only from the same ground of contemplation and make it fruitful in works, and thus the object of contemplation is achieved. Though there is motion, yet it is all one. It comes from one end, which is God, and returns to the same, as if I were to go from one end of this house to the other. That would indeed be motion, but only of one and the same. Thus, too, in this activity, we remain in a state of contemplation in God. The one rests in the other and perfects the other. For God's purpose in the union of contemplation is fruitfulness in works. For in contemplation you serve yourself alone, but in works of charity you serve the many. This is a very, I think, important point, especially when we're studying things like uh, mysticism, right? Is that we always hear that, that the sort of goal for a mystic and for you know, the goal of life is to be annihilated and be united with God, right? To be, you know, to disappear from ourselves and just be sort of absorbed in, in the divine, right? Um, but for Eckhart here, and for many mystics, that's actually not the goal. That's a sort of penultimate step on the goal. Because then, if that's all you do, if you just become united with God and then you stay there, then what's the point, right? That, as he says here, then you serve yourself alone. Rather, the final step um, after this is to come back from that experience or sort of be in that be in that experience but then return to your sort of individuality and your your regular life but with that contemplation in mind he says here that contemplation and our acts are sort of perfecting each other so now your acts are according to that inner contemplation of god and your actual purpose the true goal of this path thus becomes uh, those outward actions it's serving the poor, or giving to charity, and loving your neighbor. That is actually the goal. But when you have um, annihilated yourself and become one with God, then you can do those things fully in a sort of perfect way without any sort of ego or, or thought for yourself. It becomes all for, for, for God, but, but through you know, being for God, it becomes for, for anyone else, right? It becomes a... a, a practice of love rather than just being absorbed in some uh, divine experience and I think this is very common for people to um, today as well um, that they become sort of um, too enamored and, and stuck in this sometimes selfish idea of just you know the personal religious mystical experience and Eckhart as we have said Eckhart is very much against religious experience or he's very He's critical of it, at least the, the, the big emphasis on these experiences, because these experiences, first of all, in themselves don't really mean much, and also they, they, are, they, can be, they become selfish, because they become the thing that everyone's seeking, rather than to um, use such experiences, for instance, um, to, to be a better human being, in a practical sense. That's the actual goal. And we see this in, in all of these traditions. Not all of them, but many of them. Um, Sufism is similar, right? We talk about fana, which is annihilation of the self or the ego in God. You realize that there is only God, that there is you know, this unity. But that is not the, again, that's not the final step. The final step comes after, which is baqa. And baqa means remaining or subsistence. It's when you return from that state of union to your individuality, to the world of multiplicity, you once again see all things from seeing yourself as a person and that as a tree and that as a candle uh, th through being annihilated and seeing everything is just one thing. Everything is just God, at least according to one interpretation. Then you return and once again I am I and that's the tree and that's the candle. But now you see all that from a completely different perspective. And then you can act properly in response to that knowledge of what is actually around you and what the, what reality actually is. In Hinduism, there is the jnana and, the, and bhakti, right? 
And there are different traditions that emphasize different aspects. But in a sense, you, you gain jnana or knowledge of reality as it is so that you are able to perform bhakti properly. That's the sort of final step, is that loving worship, that loving, um, just that loving, that loving way of living, informed by knowledge of, of reality as it is, or of God. And again, we see that also here in Eckhart, um, emphasizing that contemplation, this inner experience, presence of God, is balanced or perfected by outward actions in the world. He clarifies that even more here by saying, To this Christ admonishes us by his whole life and those of all his saints, every one of whom he drove out into the world to teach the multitude. St. Paul said to Timothy, Beloved, preach the word. Did he mean the outward word that beats the air? Surely not. He meant the inwardly born and yet hidden word that lies secretly in the soul. That was what he bade him preach aloud, that it might be made known to and might nourish the soul's powers, so that a man might give himself out in all those aspects of external life in which his fellow man had need of it, and that all of this might be found in you to accomplish to the best of your ability. It must be within you in thought, in intellect, and in will, and it must shine forth too in your deeds. As Christ said, let your light shine forth before men. He had in mind those who care only for the contemplative life and neglect the practice of charity, which they say they have no further need for, having passed that stage. It was not these that Christ meant when he said, the seed fell on good soil and yielded fruit a hundredfold. He meant them when he said, the tree that bears no fruit shall be cut down. So very clearly here he emphasizes what we just talked about, right? The person who you know, becomes one with God or, you know, annihilates himself and has this great mystical experience and then just stays there. That's what Christ is referring to when he says, you know, that the tree that bears no fruit shall be cut down. So those people are like trees that bear no fruit. The fruits of all these contemplative practices is the, the outward actions that we talked about, charity, being a light. So you see the... the the, the imagery that's used in the Bible here in, in, in Matthew, let your light shine forth before men, right? to be a light for others. That is, the, that is the end goal, that is the purpose. And a person who does not accomplish that, who doesn't realize that, is like the tree that bears no fruit and that shall be cut down. Not literally, of course. But So then he continues saying, Now you might say, but sir, what of the silence you told us so much about? For this implies images galore. Every act must accord with its appropriate image, whether the act is internal or external, whether I am teaching one or comforting another, or arranging this or that, so what quiet can I get? For if the mind sees and formulates, and the will wills and memory holds fast, are not all these images. So remember he talked about the fact that we should sort of forget all images, that the experience of God is beyond images. So this is what he is talking about here. Now observe. We spoke just now of an active intellect and a passive intellect. The active intellect abstracts images from outward things, stripping them of matter and of accident, and introduces them to the passive intellect, begetting their mental image therein. And the passive intellect, made pregnant by the active in this way, cherishes and knows these things with aid of the active intellect. Even then, the passive intellect cannot keep on knowing these things unless the active intellect illuminates them afresh. Or illumines them afresh, excuse me. So this is what we talked about earlier, right? Uh, which I referred to very briefly in my discussion about these intellect. Now observe what the active intellect does for the natural man, that and far more God does for one with detachment. He takes away the active intellect from him and, installing himself in its stead, he himself undertakes all that the active intellect ought to be doing. So again, this is what I referred to earlier, right? That the active intellect is that which um, takes in external things and then gives that information to the passive intellect. Here, the goal is to let God sort of take away the individual active intellect and put himself in its stead. Indeed, when a man is quite unpreoccupied and the active intellect within him is silent, 
then God must take up the work and must be the master worksman who begets himself in the passive intellect. See if it is not so. The active intellect cannot give what it has not got, and it cannot entertain two images together. It is first one and then the other. Though the air and light show many forms and color all at once, you can only observe them one after the other. So too does the active intellect, which is similar. But when God acts in place of the active intellect, he engenders many images together in one point. For if God prompts you to do a good deed, at once all your powers proffer themselves for all good things. Your whole mind at once tends to good in general. Whatever good you can do takes shape and presents itself to you together in a flash, concentrated in a single point. Surely this demonstrates and proves that it is not the intellect's work, for it has not the perfection or the resources for this. Rather, it is the work and the offspring of him who has all images at once in himself. As Paul says, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. In him I can do not merely this or that, but all things in undivided unity. You must know then that the images of these acts are not yours. Neither are they from nature. They belong to the author of nature, in which he has implanted act and image. So do not lay claim to it, for it is his, not yours. Though conceived by you in time, it is begotten and given by God beyond time, in eternity beyond all images. So you might ask, since my intellect is divested of its natural activity and no longer has any image or action of its own, where is its support? For it must always find lodgment somewhere. The powers always seek to fasten on something and act on it, whether it be memory, intellect, or will. And here comes a section that is probably the most difficult section we've encountered so far. Uh, we're going to try to get through it as best we can. The question is, what is the, what is the support of, of, of the intellect when it is divested of, of natural activity? Right? So when it doesn't get any, any information, what, what it is, what, what's actually, what's the basis of the intellect in that case? When it is uh, beyond these images, that's how I read it. Now note the explanation of this. Intellect object and lodgment is essence, not accident, but pure unmixed being in itself. When the intellect discerns true being, it descends on it, comes to rest on it, pronouncing its intellectual word about the object it has seized on. But so long as the intellect does not find true being and does not penetrate to the ground, so as to be able to say this is this, is it is such and not otherwise, so long does it remain in a condition of questing and expectation. It does not settle down or rest, but labors on seeking, expecting, and rejecting. And though it may perhaps spend a year or more investigating a natural truth to see what it is, it still has to work long again to strip off what it is not. All this time it has nothing to go by and makes no pronouncements at all, as long as it has not penetrated to the ground of truth with full realization. Therefore, the intellect never rests in this life. However much God may reveal himself in this life, yet it is still as nothing to what he really is. Though truth is there in the ground, it is yet veiled and concealed from the intellect. All this while, the intellect has no support to rest on in the way of a changeless object. It still does not exist, but goes on expecting and preparing for something yet to become known, but so far hidden. Thus, there is no way man can know what God is. But one thing he does know, what God is not. Um, the, 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 the primary um, characteristic of apophaticism, uh, apophatic theology, negative theology. We can never know anything really about what God is. We can only know what he is not. He is not ignorant. He is not limited. He is not... Um, He's not finite. He's not ugly. You know, whatever. We, want, we know that God is, surely is not these things. But we can never really say anything positively about God. We can't say that God is this or that. And this a man of intellect will reject. Meanwhile, the intellect, finding no real object to support it, waits as matter awaits form. Just as matter will never rest until it is filled with all forms, 
So the intellect cannot rest except in the essential truth that embraces all things. Only the essence will satisfy it, and this God withdraws from it step by step in order to arouse its zeal and lure it on to seek and grasp the true groundless good so that it may be content with nothing but ever clamor for the highest good of all. So I think we can connect this to one of those things we talked about in one of the other sermons, this idea of the intellect or the soul sort of um, where we wish to know something. Uh, we're never really satisfied, right? He's talking about this here, that the intellect is never satisfied and can never rest in anything, really. We talked about the idea that it's a sort of eternal wayfaring, an eternal um, thing. The more you eat, the, the hungrier you become when it comes to these things. And so that the only way that the intellect here can become truly satisfied is when it, when it reaches this, the groundless good, right? reaches the ground where it knows nothing. Right, so all these outer things, th- this is what I'm getting from this, all these outer things, all these things that intellect can know, it, it never satisfies the intellect. It's never enough. Right? And even when it comes to knowing God, we, cannot, we can never know God, as he says. We can only know what God is not. And so by un... Sort of, this is, again, apophaticism. It's the principle of apoph- apophaticism. Removing all these things that God is not until there's basically nothing left. So this, this is sort of intellectual principle of this more general uh, thing that he's saying, is that these things that, we, that the intellect knows never satisfies it until it strips itself of all knowledge and, and unknows, then it can rest in the ground because then it has found the groundless uh, good, the abgrund, the, the, the abyss of the ground. Again, this section is pretty um, complicated, I would say. Um, but I think this is at least related to what he's saying here. Now you might say, oh sir, you said so much about how all our faculties should be quiet and now you go setting up a great clamor of yearning in this quietness. That would be a great moaning and outcry for something we haven't got. And that would be the end of this peace and quiet. Whether it were desire or purpose or praise or thanksgiving or whatever else the mind might beget or imagine, it would not be perfect peace or absolute stillness. Um, so, he's talking about the idea that we seek God, uh, as we, you know, the intellect seeks to sort of rest in, in the ground of, of God. But that, according to this question, right, is is a great clamor. Um, so it, it goes against this idea that that, that that we are in this state of stillness and quietude, if we are desiring to. You know, to this and that. So it seems to go against what Eckhart was saying earlier. He explains, let me explain. When you have completely stripped yourself of your own self and all things and every kind of attachment and have transferred, made over and abandoned yourself to God in utter faith and perfect love, then whatever is born in you or touches you, within or without, joyful or sorrowful, sour or sweet, that is no longer yours. It is altogether your gods to whom you have abandoned yourself. Tell me, whom does the spoken word belong to? To the speaker or the hearer? Though it falls to the hearer, it really belongs to the speaker who gave it birth. Here's an example. The sun casts its light into the air. The air receives the light and gives it to the earth, thus enabling us to distinguish different colors. Now, though the light is formally in the air, Essentially, it is in the sun. The light actually comes from the sun, where it originates, and not in the air. It is received by the air, which passes it on to anything that is receptive to light. It is just the same with the soul. God bears the word in the soul, and the soul conceives it and passes it on to her powers in varied guise. Now as desire, now as good intent, now as charity, now as gratitude, or however it may affect you. It is all his and not yours at all. What God thus does, you must accept all that as his and not as your own. Just as it is written, the Holy Ghost makes intercession with countless mighty sighs. He prays within us, not we ourselves. St. Paul says, no man can say, Lord Jesus Christ, but in the Holy Ghost. 
he's clarifying that we still, even when we reach this union or this unknowing, when we um, annihilate ourselves and sort of God, we realize this birth of, of, of the sun in this case, um, we still act in the world. So that's the sort of theme of this whole sermon, I would say, right? This relationship between the contemplative life and the active life. We're still active in the world. We're not just sitting you know, in meditation, completely absorbing God all the time. We're still acting, we still have, you know, desires. We're still, uh, we still want to feed the, the hungry. We still want to, you know, all these things. We still live our lives. But we live our lives in accordance with the will of God. As we said in the first sermon, I think, our will becomes God's will. So God, we realize that everything belongs to Him. Even our own actions in a certain sense. He's really the one that's, acting, all these things that, that, are, that, that come from within you, they actually come from God. So there's this realization that everything actually comes from God. Everything is God in a certain sense. Um, so, so that means that the person now acts, um, I wouldn't say perfectly, well I guess in a certain sense he acts perfectly because he's acting and, and living his life in accordance with uh, that divine will because everything, at least he's realized that everything is coming from God and he's sort of in tune with that. That is, that is my reading of this. This above all else is needful. You must lay claim to nothing. Let go of yourself and let God act with you and in you as he will. This word is his, this birth is his, in fact every single thing that you are. For you have abandoned self and have gone out of your soul's powers and their activities and your personal nature. Therefore, God must enter into your being and powers because you have bereft yourself of all possessions and become as a desert, as it is written, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Let this eternal voice cry out in you as it listeth and be as a desert in respect to yourself and all things. I love this imagery that, that Eckhart sometimes uses, that you are to become a desert. Uh, sort of empty yourself, become completely empty, right? Uh, again, that's a recurring theme, but I think the imagery of, of the desert is very powerful here. Now you might say, but sir, what does a man do to be void as a desert in respect of himself and all things? Should a man wait all the time for God to work and do nothing himself, or should he do something in the meantime, like praying or reading or some other good occupation, such as listening to sermons or studying scripture? Since such a man is not supposed to take anything in from without, but only from within, from his God, does he not miss something by not doing these things? So uh, I guess you could call this uh, a different formulation of the same question from before, whereas here it's more directed at sort of religious um, actions rather than sort of, well, you could argue that that's religious actions too, giving to the poor, etc. But here it's more related to the religious rituals like studying scripture or listening to sermons and so on. So it's a sort of different flavor of the same question. Eckhart says, now listen, all outward works were established and ordained to direct the outer man to God and to train him to spiritual living and good deeds that he might not stray into ineptitudes to act as a curb on his inclination to escape from self to things outside, so that when God would work in him, he might find him ready and not have to draw him back from things alien and gross. For the greater the delight in outward things, the harder it is to leave them, the stronger the love, the sharper the pain when it comes to parting. Um, there's a section here that says, um, to act as a curb on its inclination to escape from self, to things outside. Here, whereas before he's talking about an sort of getting rid of the self, here he seems to use the self in a more positive sense, as maybe he's talking about more as sort of your true self, because he says, um, he's speaking negatively of these aspects of, of, of us, that these inclinations that try to escape from self to things outside. And in this case, the things outside are the, are the negative things, right? Um, Whereas the self is the, is the good aspect. And so the only way I can sort of make sense of this is that he's here talking about the sort of true self, the self, the ground where the self is one with God. See then, all works and pious practices, praying, reading, singing, 
vigils, fasting, penance, or whatever discipline it may be, these were invented to catch a man and restrain him from things alien and ungodly. Thus, when a man realizes that God's Spirit is not working in him and that the inner man is forsaken by God, it is very important for the outer man to practice these virtues and especially such as are the most feasible, useful, and necessary for him. Not, however, from selfish attachment, but so that, respect for truth preserving him from being attracted and led astray by what is gross, he may stay close to God, and so that God may find him near at hand when he chooses to return and act in his soul, without having to seek far afield. So, basically saying that all these outer aspects of religion, such as prayer and, and fasting and vigil, vigils and uh, penance and all these things, they're, they're all very important. And he's sort of talking about the purpose of these things. It is to, to, to keep your ego in check, basically. Right? It's to not let the ego and the mind stray into being too occupied with these worldly, temporary things. And to stay focused on the in, in the, in, the, the inward things, the true things. Um, at least for a layperson to just keep those two in balance, to not get too absorbed into to, to the world, um, and to not forget about the divine. Um, to keep that balance, and for someone who's very dedicated, like a monk who's you know in, in this sort of tradition, maybe. Um, the emphasis is even more on the other side of completely forgetting the outward. Um, so, so he's pointing out here that these actions, these rituals, these practices are very important. Um, they're an important step on the way and they're important for people to, to keep this ego in check. But then, and this is where it gets really interesting, um, where he says... But if a man knows himself to be well-trained in true inwardness, then let him boldly drop all outward disciplines, even those he is bound to, and from which neither pope nor bishop can release him. From the vows a man has made to God, none can release him, but they can be turned into something else. For every vow is a contract with God, but if a man has taken solemn vows of such things as prayer, fasting, or pilgrimage, if he then enters some order, he is released from them. For in the order he is vowed to goodness as a whole and to God himself. Now here, this is possibly, if not the, then certainly one of the most controversial aspects of Eckhart's thought. You might think that, you know, and, and as some of you may know, he was accused of heresy uh, by the end of his life, and certain statements that he made were deemed heretical. He, as a person, was never deemed a heretic, but certain quotes and ideas that he has expressed were deemed heretical. And you might think that the, the you know, if you're used to sort of a mainstream contemporary Christianity today, you might think that those ideas that were deemed heretical were things like, you know, this idea of union with God, or that God's ground and the ground of the soul is one ground, all these things. But that would be like the, the big, most controversial things. It's not at all, actually. Um, it's very different things that, that, the, that the church was concerned with, and this was one of the primary ones. He seems to say that a person who, in his words, uh, knows himself to be well-trained in true inwardness, so the person who sort of has really penetrated into this ground, and does done these things that we've talked about over these sermons, then he can drop all outward disciplines. And he seems to say so pretty clearly here. Even, um, even those he's bound to and from which neither pope nor bishop can release him. That's, that's pretty radical stuff. Uh, and again, that's one of those things that, that people, you know, the church didn't really appreciate. And he will nuance this now. It will become a bit clearer. But still, uh, this is one of the most, I think, radical things that Eckhart says um, in all of his sermons or writings. And this is different from what we talked about earlier um, in the first sermon where, you know, him and someone like Marguerite Poret will say that when you become one with God, then you don't have to um, do all, all these outward things. In that case, it's more 
Now you do them, but you do them not because you have to, but because you know your will and God's will is one will, and so you just do them naturally. Um, this is that's living without a why, as he calls it. This is different. Here he seems to be very clearly saying that you don't have to perform those things at all. So what's he actually saying here? He continues, and so I say the same here. Whatever a man's vows to manifold things, by entering into true inwardness, he's released from them. As long as his inwardness lasts, be it a week, a month, or a year, none of this time is lost by the monk or nun, for God, who has captured and imprisoned them, must answer for it. On returning to himself, a man should perform his vows for the time present, but as for what you might think you have neglected in the preceding time, you need not bother to make it up. For God himself will make it up from the period during which he caused you to be idle. You should not wish to make it up by any act of creatures, for the least act of God outweighs all the works of creatures. So a bit more nuance here, right? So it seems like he's talking about someone who's in this state of contemplation currently, whether that lasts for an hour or a day or a week or a month or whatever time that may be, it's a limited amount of time. In that state, he doesn't have to perform these actions. So it's not like he's saying, oh, you've come to this point of, of spiritual enlightenment, so now you don't have to do these rituals ever in your life. That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying during this um, experience, during this period of deep contemplation, which is never permanent, he said in the beginning that if, if, if it was permanent, then um, you would be lost in it completely. But for that time, you don't have to bother with all these practices. Whereas when you come back, you should, of course, start praying again or fasting or whatever, do your, the things that you've taken a vow to do. But he also points out that in, at that point, you don't need to sort of make up for, what you, for the time you lost. So, so still, it's pretty, it's pretty radical still, but maybe not as radical as it seemed uh, a few sentences ago. This is said to learned and illumined people who have been taught and illumined by God and Scripture. But how is it with a simple layman who knows and understands nothing but corporeal discipline and who has taken on some vow, whether of prayer or the like? To him I say this, if he finds it hampering and that he draws nearer to God without it, let him boldly give it up. For any work that brings you nearer to God and God's embrace is the best. That is what Paul meant when he said, when wholeness comes, the partial vanishes. There is a big difference between a vow taken before a priest and vows taken in simplicity to God himself. If a man vows anything to God, it is with the laudable intention of binding himself thus to God, which at the time a man thinks to be for the best. But if he learns of a better way, then, knowing by experience that it is better, let him be quite free of the first and content. Also very interesting. Could be seen as pretty radical here, right? Talking about lay people and saying similar things about them. Perhaps even more radical because this sort of time, um, this time limit that we seem to see before isn't really present in this statement. So um, let me know maybe in the comments what you think that he's, like is he being as radical here as, he, as it seems? In any case, he continues, this is easy to prove. For one should consider the fruits and the inward truth rather than the outward act. As Paul says, the letter, that is, all outward practices, kills, but the spirit gives life. That is, an inward realization of truth. You should take good note of this and follow above all whatever benefits you the best for this. Your spirit should be elevated, not downcast, but rather ardent and yet in a detached, quiet stillness. No need to tell God what you need or desire. He already knows. Real mic drop of a, of, a, of a quote there. Christ said to his disciples, Do not use many words in your prayers like the Pharisees, for they think to be heard with much speaking. That we may here so seek this peace and inward silence, that the eternal word may be spoken within us and understood, and that we may become one therewith. May the Father help us, and that word, and the spirit of both. Amen.
we uh, got through the third sermon. Um, to me, that one is certainly the most difficult so far. It has certain sections that are more dense philosophically, um, but still contains some real gems and some real good um, quotes and, and teachings from, from the old Dominican friar. Um, this is one of those where I think sometimes I've, like I said, I'm even confused myself. I'm not entirely sure. I try to give some running commentary as to sort of what I, how I read things and my interpretations and perspectives and what I get out of, of what's being said here. But I would, of course, love to hear if you have um, other perspectives, if you see something here that I'm missing, whatever. Um, I would love to, to see um, what you have to say about that. So please leave a comment if you have anything to add and let me know also what you thought of the sermon. Um, that was three out of four. So we only have one more sermon to go. We're going to do that one on uh, Christmas Eve or maybe Christmas Day. We'll see. Either Christ On Christmas, we'll do the fourth one. And I'm very much looking forward to that. This has been a, a wonderful little uh, thing this year so far and I, I am really glad to see that many of you out there are enjoying it as much as I am. Um, spending some time with Eckhart uh, during the Christmas season really gives it um, more weight in, in, in a certain sense which I think is very uh, very valuable. So thank you so much for tuning in for watching this third installment of Christmas with Meister Eckhart. Um, I hope again that the holiday season is treating you well. I hope your next week will be uh, meaningful and, and positive and, and uh, bring you joy or, or comfort in some way. And uh, I look forward to spending some more time with you next week on Christmas as we read the fourth sermon. So I don't think there's really anything more to say. At this moment, I'll see you in the comments and I will see you in the next video.